Tonight, breaking news. Donald Trump and 18 allies are charged in Georgia with trying to overturn the 2020 election. The former president accused of running a criminal enterprise to stay in power. Tomorrow, we'll break down the unprecedented charges against Mr. Trump, the most extensive yet. How a law often used to target mobsters is now central to this case. Why Mr. Trump could face prison time if convicted and the parallels between the Georgia case and Mr. Trump's indictment in the January 6th investigation. But tonight, we're looking back at another generation-defining moment in our history, Woodstock. On the anniversary of the legendary music festival, rock icons Carlos Santana and Graham Nash reflect on three days of peace and music that changed America. That, as Metro Focus starts right now. We are stars, we are we are This is Metro Focus with Raphael P. Roman, Jack Ford, and Jenna Flanagan. Metro Focus is made possible by James and Merrill Tisch, Sue and Edgar Wachenheim III, the Sylvia A. and Simon B. Poida Programming Endowment to Fight Anti-Semitism, Bernard and Irene Schwartz, Rosalind P. Walter, Barbara Hope Zuckerberg, and by... In August of 1969, half a million people converged on Max Yasker's dairy farm in upstate New York for an event that would become the defining moment of the 60s counterculture revolution. Unfolding against a backdrop of a nation divided over the Vietnam War, civil rights and sexual politics, Woodstock would feature some of the biggest names in rock and roll, including Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, the Who, Janis Joplin, and Richie Havens. Also among the performers gathered for what was billed as three days of peace and music was a new supergroup made up of members from some of the most popular bands of the era. Stephen Stills and Neil Young of Buffalo Springfield, David Crosby of The Birds, and Graham Nash of The Hollies. Together, their harmonies were almost otherworldly, and at Woodstock, they earned themselves the title of rock and roll royalty. Recently, I had a chance to speak with Graham Nash about that surreal and life-transforming experience. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. It's You're such an honor to have you with us. Now, Graham, when Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young um, first got on the stage at Woodstock, uh, Stephen Stills famously said, quote, This is only the second time we ever played in front of people, man. We're scared shitless. <laughs> Was it really the f second time you guys had ever played in front of an audience? And yes. were all of you scared shitless? I wasn't so scared. I mean, I'd already been through seven years of madness with the Hollies in England before that, you know. Uh, but it was, a, it was a crazy night, and we, we were a little nervous, not particularly because of the people in front of us, but the people surrounding us. All our favorite musicians that wanted to know who these guys they, they knew who these guys were but can these guys do that record can they can what who are they come on show us what they are so we were a little nervous about the people around us not necessarily the people in front of us of which there were many <laughs> but it was the second time only that we had played in front yeah, of people. that's amazing that is yes. amazing now s set the scene for us um how did you get to woodstock and um, how did the whole scene unfold before your eyes? We flew into Woodstock in the helicopters and uh, 
flying over all those people and all those, uh, the mud and the rain and the fires. Uh, Crosby said it looked like an encampment of the Macedonian army and he was quite right. So uh, I was nearly, I think I was nearly killed on the way in because what happened is just as we were landing about 50 feet from the from uh, landing the tail rotor on the on the helicopter stopped and so the body of the helicopter started to spin in opposition to the rotation of their blades uh, but he 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 the pilot knew what he was doing and it, it we thudded we had a heavy landing and it it turned out okay. Yeah, that would have changed rock and roll history, wouldn't it? Particularly <laughs> So that same night, you were set to appear on the Dick Cabot Show back in New York City. And you made it, straight from Woodstock, mud and all. Well, here's the story. It w wasn't us that was supposed to be on there. This was Joni's first major TV appearance in America. That's why, even though Joni was invited to play Woodstock, Elliot uh, Roberts, our manager, and David Geffen, our manager, decided that Joni might not be able to get out of Woodstock for the Monday show of her biggest TV appearance. And so uh, what happened is that because we had come back from Woodstock and we were hanging out, I mean, Joni was my girlfriend, we were here at the Carlisle Hotel, she had a piano, we got back from Woodstock and she'd already written Woodstock. Wow. And she never even went. <laughs> but she had been checking it out on the TV and, and, and listening to people. And that, uh, that's the genius of Joni. Yeah. She didn't even go, but she wrote the song that encapsulates all of it. That is. It's the emblematic song, particularly yeah. your recording of it. What is it about that song that continues to captivate? Is it just simply that it just captured the essence of that event? It did, lyrically. It's beautiful lyrics. Jo Joni's, Joni's version was a, 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 a little bluer a little more purple, a little more minor, slower, you know, by the yeah. time we, right? When she played us the song, Stephen looked at John and said, uh, can we have that song? And she said, well, I, let me, uh, yes, you can have it. And he said, can I turn it into a rock and roll song? Hmm. And she looked at him a little, she said, okay, Stephen, I trust you. Yes, you can. And it was Stephen Stills that made that record, really. Yeah. He, he was a brilliant, brilliant musician. Yeah. Yeah. Neil Young performed with you guys in Woodstock. Not a lot of people think that. Right, and we'll talk about that. But, but first of all, you know, Deja Vu had not yet come out. Right. Did people already know that Crosby, Stills and Nash had morphed into Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young? Or were they surprised to see him there? I think they were surprised to see him there. Yeah. Because uh, the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record was quite popular at that point. Yeah. Uh, and nobody had ever seen us, as we said, it was only the second night. Uh, and little beknownst to us, meaning me and David and Stephen, yeah. Neil had told every cameraman on the stage never to shoot one frame of him. Why? To this day, <laughs> and I've asked Neil several times, to this day I've never really gotten the reason why he, he chose that. But we didn't know <laughs> that he had done that. <laughs> that sounds like well, what people know, say about him. Uh, the, the truth is that I began to realize just how what sort of a special man Neil Young was. <laughs> You're going to be diplomatic, as is your, as is as your is reputation. Not, yes. <laughs> All right. You know, in many people's mind, Woodstock symbolized the formal birth of the age of Aquarius. You know, a new dawn of peace, love, and understanding. Now, this is something I didn't know until recently. 
just four months later, you guys were performing in Altamont. Uh, the infamous, you know, rock and uh, yes. Rolling Stones, Altamont, where three people died, one stabbed to death by the Hells yep. Angels, which for some reason were hired to do uh, it was a security. Mess. It was a complete mess. Now that's considered, both literally and symbolically, uh, the end of the '60s. Yes. Uh, do you see it that way? I do. It was a completely reversed the vibe of Woodstock. It was chaotic. They were uh, playing electronic music loud uh, between sets, between acts. Uh, they had given the Hells Angels permission to, to be security. Uh, and uh, they had lined all their beautiful bikes up, you know, and somebody knocked one over uh, and the kid was getting beaten, you know. It, it, it was entirely the opposite of, of the vibe of Woodstock. People from the Jefferson Airplane on stage were getting beat up, That's right? That's right. Yeah. By the Hells Angels. Marty Ballon, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, so what was it? Was Altamont a reflection of the times? I mean, was the, the worm turning on the age of Aquarius already? Or did it kind of spark uh, a negative movement? I don't think it sparked a negative movement. I, I do believe that it was the, uh, the entire opposite of Woodstock. But it did not kill the age of Aquarius and it didn't kill the 60s. It, it, it tried, <laughs> for sure. Uh, we had a show that same night in Los Angeles. And this, the, of course, Altamont was just outside of San Francisco. Um, and we got out of there as fast as we could. It, we, nobody wanted to be there. Mm -hmm. I'm sure not even the Rolling Stones. But I think they handled it as best they could, yeah. you know. So 50 years later, what's left of the essence, the movement that was Woodstock, do you think? The one thing that comes immediately to mind is the intrusion of corporate uh, money into rock and roll. When they saw 300, 400, 500,000 people, whoever you believe, and they realized that we could, hey, we could sell them another pair of sneakers and another cola here. This is incredible. That was when corporations started to get involved in the, in the performance of, of, of festivals. And I, 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 think that, uh, I think that was a bad thing. Yeah. So listen, a year after Woodstock, a year after Altamont, Deja Vu came out, even bigger than your first album. Uh, in many people's mind, it was uh, the birth of a new rock and roll dynasty. Um, a year later, though, you guys split up. Why? When you're in a band with four massive egos <laughs> and four massive talents, um, it gets a little tricky sometimes. And uh, in that particular case, it was, it was Neil uh, deciding that uh, our drummer Dallas Taylor couldn't play Neil's music the way Neil wanted it played. Mm. Uh, and so that became a sticking point. And, uh, there were a lot of drugs involved, a lot of smoking weed, a lot of snorting cocaine. It was a very tense time. And uh, we don't believe that we ever broke up. We just, we just took you know, small vacations from each other occasionally. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was, a, it was an intense time for sure. Well, you know, David Crosby has said that the fluidity of Crosby, Stills and Nash, and then of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, was the idea from the beginning. Yes. That you guys didn't want to be a regular band, that you wanted the freedom to separate and come back together. That must have been played a part in that, right? It did. It played yeah. a huge part because we'd already been in bands, the Hollies and the Buffalo Springfield yeah. and, and, and the Birds. 
we wanted to put our names there. We, wanted, we didn't want to be a band in that sense. We wanted to be able to come together whenever we wanted, when the music struck us. And that's all it was always. And that's what you've done. But you know, I recently had a chance to speak with David Brown, who's written the most recent history of your group. Um, and I asked him, you know, where would he put Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young in the pantheon of, of rock and roll music? And what does David say? Well, he said, you, you guys are way up there because of the quality and the influence of your music. But that if you had not broken up and gotten back together again so many times, if you had stayed together longer, it'd be even up higher. Yeah. What do you think? I read David's book. I, I was interviewed for it. He's a fine writer and a good friend. Uh, I, my only complaint was it seemed to be a, a, a diary of how we screwed up, <laughs> you know, uh, and there wasn't a lot of the joy in, in the music that we had created when David and Stephen and I had put uh, our three voices to blend together as one voice. Yeah. You know, there was a certain incredible joy when we, when we first heard that sound, which happened in Joni's living room. We knew our lives had changed dramatically and that we would, I would have to go back to England and leave the Hollies and leave all my stuff and leave my family and come to really? live in America. That was the moment you decided. Absolutely, because we're musicians and we were all pretty decent harmony bands. You know, the Birds in the Springfield and, and, and the Hollies were pretty good, right, at harmony. But this was something completely different to all of us and each one of us knew. In fact, after we sang that one song of, of Stevens, You Don't Have to Cry, um, we said to Joan, was that as good as we thought it was? Mm -hmm. And she said, absolutely. And she was the only witness. Right. Well, listen, you know, according to conventional wisdom, the wisdom of those who write books about it or, or music fans, um, David Crosby is the wild, undisciplined hippie. Um, Stephen Stills is the hard taskmaster, the platoon leader. Um, Young is out there, hardly in your, in your orbit. And you are the diplomat, the peacemaker. Is conventional wisdom right? I believe so. And it's quite simple. I want to get the job done. Whatever task you set out to do, get it done the best way you can. And I'd already experienced madness with seven years in the, uh, of 15 top 10 hits with the Hollies. Mm -hmm. So this wasn't so crazy for me. Woodstock wasn't that crazy for me. Those amount of people weren't that crazy for me, mm. you know. Um, but yes, we had, uh, we had created something and were so moved by it that I left my country of birth mm -hmm. to come here and follow that sound because I'm a musician mm -hmm. and I wanted that sound and I always wanted that sound. Mm -hmm. And yes, I, I have tried to keep us even keeled. I have tried to, you know, balance arguments with, with praise. I've tried a lot, you know, mm -hmm. but I want to get the job done. Yeah. And that's, that's what, who I am. Are we going to see that job being done again? Is there any plans for you, four of you to get together again, record, perform? Absolutely not. <laughs> okay, well maybe we'll work on that diplomacy a little bit. <laughs> yes. so, so, what do you think has been the group's most lasting legacy? Final question. I think we made music that made people shake their ass and think. I think that we brought some music into the world that, that was decent music that will last for a long time. I mean, 
I'm going to be 78 next birthday, you know. Mm. It's been a long time, and yet people still love the songs that, that, that we... I was sitting in CBS yesterday trying to pick up a subscription, and Wasted on the Way came on the radio. And I'm, 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 sitting there, I'm sitting there and I'm going, wow, that was a really cool record, you know. And I, it made me starting to think and appreciate exactly what it was that we did. And to, to have that uh, uh, recollection in the CVS was quite yeah. strange for me. Well, I, I tell you, Graham, the rest of us know exactly what you contributed to music. Um, it changed many of our lives. I mean, it was, changed like mine. they say, the soundtrack of our lives. And yes. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. My pleasure, Graham. Thanks. Now, Carlos, I know you've told the story a million times, but I have to ask. You know, it's been reported that every time you look at your performance of Woodstock and the Woodstock documentary, you either flinch or avert your eyes. Why? What is it about that performance that makes you do that? Well, when we landed, you know, we were in this helicopter and I never seen so many... It was like an ocean of hair and teeth and <laughs> arms. And, it, and, and when we landed, the first person that I saw was Jerry Garcia. And I, he says, what time are you going to go on? I said, Apparently two bands after you, and he goes, well, then you make yourself comfortable. This is like 12.30, 1 in the, morning, in the, in the afternoon. So we're not going to go until like 1 in the morning. And I go, oh, I guess we're going to go around 3 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, in the meantime, uh, you, you want some of this? And I was like, sure. You know, I do the math between now and like, yeah, I'll be fine by then. What was it? It was acid. <laughs> you know, it was LSD. <laughs> And so I went, whoop. and as soon as I took it, it was like, <laughs> everything became uh, another dimension, you know, and, and then I see this face coming and saying, if you don't play now, you're not going to play at all. You need to go on right now. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> okay. You know, I thought I had six, seven hours to recuperate from because you know it's like kind of like a roller coaster you know you, you go through this and so I said okay take a deep breath and, and and I discover a mantra back then without even knowing God please help me help me to stay in tune <laughs> and in time and I promise I'll never do this again <laughs> so I went up there and I, you know, and, and so when I started playing, of course, the, the guitar neck, uh, the neck and the guitar started wavering, you know, mm. like a snake. And I was like, oh, uh oh. <laughs> uh, so I just started making faces because I was trying to keep it tame, you know, I was trying to keep it from slithering all over the place. When I first saw the movie, Jimi Hendrix lady took me to see it. He had left that morning for Maui. So she says, hey man, what are you doing? He says, oh, you know, we just got, we got a day off. Well, go unpack your stuff man, and come. I want to take you to this movie. What movie? She says, what's that? What's that? They made a movie? Yeah, he says, wait till you see it. He says, we saw it last night with Jimi, and when you guys came on, you guys freaked them out. I go, really? He goes, he loved your energy, man. He loved your performance. And he's like, so, you know, it's such a beautiful uh, badge of honor that uh, someone so imperial like Jimi Hendrix would dig, dig our performance. 
uh, I feel really grateful because it takes a lot of courage to go in front of 550,000 people <laughs> uh, at the peak of this uh, mind expensive, kind of like a shaman, you mm -hmm. know, going through uh, from, anyway. Uh, fortunately, it was successful. It was more than successful. I mean, it was masterful. I know you're a modest guy, but you stole the show. I give the credit to God, man, because that's what I keep praying for. Always, just like with diligence, please, please, please. I'm, I trusted that my, my fingers knew where to go and what to do. What I was calling up to, to, to make the connection was with my spirit and God, so that God would say, okay, take a deep breath, Take a deep breath, and I'm going to guide you, navigate through all this mind hallucination stuff. Mm -hmm. Because, it's, you know, it's, it's, and then I began to really like it. I used to do it here in New York a lot. <laughs> but I thought you promised God you wouldn't do it again. You didn't keep your promise? Well, I didn't do that Pacific acid. You know, I took some other, <laughs> mescaline, peyote, and other kind of stuff. Actually, it's, uh, nowadays, I don't think people are, maybe under supervision, it, it, I'm not endorsing it, but I would say that even Cary Grant, under supervision, needed to, because when you take it, it's also like a snake shedding all beliefs. You know, okay. uh, it's under supervision. It's actually very therapeutically healing for you. Yeah. Woodstock, in the summer of 1969. Thousands of young Americans gathered at Yazger's farm and jammed along with Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, Richie Havens, and so many more iconic musical sounds. It was a festival of music and life, coupled with the burgeoning sexual and drug liberation of the time. As 13 celebrates the summer of 69, let's take a look at Woodstock myths versus Woodstock realities. And joining us now to go along on this trip, and to discuss how Woodstock marked the end of an era for the entire country and the beginning of a new one, one of our favorite guests, Professor Robert Thompson, the founding director, among, among other things, the founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. It's always a pleasure to have you here with us to talk about all, all of these things. Let me start with what, what was the lure? I mean, obviously the music was attractive, um, but what was, what was it? What was the inspiration that brought so many people to this place? Yeah, well, you know, part of it was just magic. This was kind of a disorganized thing. If you go back and see how they, I mean, it was originally gonna have tickets and then they had to open it to free. They didn't have the thing uh, uh, set up. Traffic was completely not uh, uh, accounted for, but for all number of reasons, dozens of these great uh, uh, people playing, this became kind of the siren call in the golden age of the counterculture to come, come, come to Woodstock. Something really special will happen there. And something did. And I don't think it was the music. The music only became important when the film came out and when the soundtrack came out. Let's face it, most of those people who were there were so far away, they couldn't even see the bands and hear them. The sound system wasn't designed for that many people. This was so much more about a happening. And in many ways, you and I, who were, you know, you worrying about your summer job, that's so establishment. The fact that we didn't go uh, was one of the reasons why they wanted to. 
Let's talk about about some of those 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 myths versus realities. All right. So the first one you touched on, the, the notion of the music, that, you know, fabulous music, legendary performers, but not that many people actually got to hear them. In, in so many ways, that so many more people showed up than uh, was expected. Most people were way way far back. And let's remember, this is before they had the big video screens. Uh, so you were uh, all you had to do is look yonder at those tiny tiny things that may or may not be the people performing. So the music was important. That was why they were there. That's what brought them there. But once they got there, it was about all of this other uh, stuff. So a couple of interesting things. One is you mentioned the fact that this is one of those events that so many more people say, oh, yeah, I was at Woodstock. And you want to look at them and say, no, nah, no, you weren't. You weren't. But beyond that. So we talked about the music. It's this sort of this vision, the myth anyway, of this idyllic gathering and meadows and, you know, lovely sort of personal interactions. Talk about the like the weather and the mud and the facilities, food. What was that all about? This was the perfect manifestation of the counterculture of the hippie movement, as we uh, called it back then. I mean, you're right. This was back to the garden. Uh, it was a dairy farm, for heaven's sakes. Uh, uh, this really did, uh, you know, uh, uh, in so many ways, uh, epitome, uh, was the epitome of what so much of the counterculture uh, was about. And when they got there, nature continued to cooperate by raining and making mud and allowing people to literally become one with nature as they fell in the mud. And uh, they didn't mind. I think most audiences today would never tolerate the conditions at Woodstock, the lack of uh, enough uh, uh, bathrooms, uh, lack of food and water and all the rest of it. But somehow that back to the garden thing really worked. Well, it, as we said, it, it was a fascinating moment in time that captured so much of what was going on in our culture and our society back then. Um, and it's when we have you on here, I, it, it always illustrates to me why you're such a, a, a an extraordinary teacher, because we learn so much from you in our conversation. Professor Robert Thompson. So well, it, 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 it's always our pleasure to have you here with us and to share some of your thoughts. We'll look forward to our next conversation. Thanks again for joining us and you be well.